uh, one that is at times so confusing and complex that we've decided in this series to offer you the chance to ask questions as we move along. So there'll be a text number to my right uh, throughout the message. If you have a question at the end, God willing, we'll have some time uh, to interact with at least one or two or three of those questions. Here's, here's the summary of, of this series of messages. It, that that I, I believe captures the essence and the focus of the book of Ecclesiastes. Even if, even if in the quest for significance, we could try everything there is to try under heaven, we would never find our meaning here. For our maker is our meaning. So even if in the quest for significance we could try everything under heaven that there is to try, we would never find our meaning here, for our maker is our meaning. We've been tracking with King Solomon and his journal, an account of all the things that he tried in order to find meaning in life. And time and again, he says to us, it's a chasing after the wind. It is meaningless. It is pointless. There is nothing but futility in everything under the sun. So he tried knowledge and philosophy. It was empty. He tried pleasure, empty, wealth, empty, even religion and good causes, empty, youth and health, all of them without exception come up empty. So the essence of Solomon's heart in this this book is what is the point? What is the point? Does anything matter? And his unhappy, deeply distressed cry is Under the sun, it is all meaningless. It's all meaningless. Funny thing happened since the last message. Uh, one One of the folks who heard the last message, which was about the meaninglessness of youth and health, if you'll remember, and and there was something of a call and an invitation and an exhortation for us to live aware of the brevity of life. Well, this person apparently by her own testimony, was mildly resistant to that, apparently living in a bit of good-natured denial of that. She has given me permission. I won't name her as much as I'd like to. Uh, I won't name her, but she's given me permission to share this. Um, In some good-natured denial, only to discover between that message and now the existence of her first gray hair. And she went viral with this, blaming me for it. I've been trying to figure out. I I have never, ever had such dramatic confirmation of anything I've ever preached. It's, 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 there it is. But folks, seriously, you can't stop it. You can't stop it. Age happens to us all, and so futility is attached to everything under the sun. Now hang in there, because we're turning a corner. Hang in there and realize, wait for it, 
There are going to be some amazing surprises and twists and turns in this book as we move toward conclusion. But in order for those surprises and those joys to impact us, we, we have had to take the time to think carefully about the futility of all the things we try as human beings. In order for us to see the glory of what God offers to us, we need to see the vanity and the futility and the meaninglessness of what this world has to offer to us. And so Solomon, as we have said, this man who would have made a perfect American, a man who had everything and yet was profoundly unhappy, this man begins to hint at an answer here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. In verse 11, the heart of our answer and, and the goal for our quest for significance is captured in the phrase, God has put eternity into man's heart. God has put eternity into our hearts. There is a time for everything, and God makes everything beautiful in its time, but there is also eternity. That which is unfettered, unrestrained by time, that which transcends the mundane, the ordinary, and the time-bound. There is a whisper of that eternity in every human heart. There, there is something within us that surpasses time. There is something within us that longs to soar above and beyond time into the vastness of what is out there. We have a soul that aspires for something above the sun. And this is the lesson for us. This is the simple lesson, but it is ever so. I would suggest it is infinitely profound and life-altering. My friend, you will always feel that something is missing if you live a life that is earth and time-bound. You always will. The earth and time-bound life will lack the deep fundamental meaning for which it was made. There, there's inside of each of us a spark of something immortal. And whatever has a spark of immortality in it can never be satisfied with the mortal, can never be satisfied with the temporary. Here is the ultimate message of Ecclesiastes. We are made for the eternal one. We are made for the eternal one whose voice echoes in our hearts. We are, we are made for the eternal one whose voice echoes in our hearts. Our maker is our meaning. There is eternity in our hearts. This, this is not, friends, a, 
a suggestion that somehow or other, well, we've got all kinds of good and happy things going on in our life, and they're making us feel good. But there's this one little remaining hole there, and it's a God-sized hole, and you just kind of plug God into that little hole, and then you're complete. That's not what this is about. Our whole life is a void. Everything is empty. Everything is shallow. Everything lacks ultimate meaning unless God affects it all. Unless the eternal connects to it all. I was, when I was young, I, and when I am old, I had a massive appetite. I used to, in a, in a 10 minute, we'd sit down to dinner with my mom having labored for three hours preparing dinner. It would be gone in 10 minutes. I had three brothers and my dad, all of about the same size. My poor mom. It was, it was futility, futility, futility. All this futility. It was just this exercise in vanity. I would inhale in 10 minutes enough food for five men. And then 30 minutes later, be coming back to mom saying, I'm hungry. No exaggeration. My mom's response 30 minutes later was peanut butter and jelly. There you go. Peanut butter and jelly, the ultimate filler. The ultimate filler. There are people who treat God that way. That's not what this is about. God is no filler. He's the feast. He's the feast. And we must... We must know him and love him and enjoy him and delight in him and allow the eternal that is in our hearts, that sense of the immortal and the eternal, we must allow that to affect us, that to rule us, that to control us. We are made for the eternal one whose voice echoes in our hearts. Now, I want to just very quickly try to go through four questions with you. Okay, here are the four questions. What is this eternity in our hearts? Then number two, how are we aware of it? Number three, how did it get there? And then number four, how do we respond to it? So that's, that's where we're going. Question number one, what is this eternity in our hearts? Well, if you, look at the, if you look at the context, you see all the references to time. There's a time for this, a time for that, a time for the other thing. And while there is a time for everything, there is e- eternity in the heart. So the, the author is saying to us, there, there is time, we live in time, and there are times appointed for us. But while we are living in time... There is something in us that transcends time, that rises above time. That is to say, we have a sense sense of the eternal, we have a sense of God. We have a, a sense of the immortal and we aspire to it. We are aware that there's something inside of us that longs for more, it longs for things bigger and greater and and more lasting than anything here below. We have, we have, you have, you have, and in one sense, you are, a never-dying soul. 
You are a never-dying being. You will go on forever. There are no mere mortals. You will go on forever. The question is, where? And how? And in what state? There is eternity in our hearts. There is a sense of the eternal. Paul Tripp puts it like this, if you are a human being, you are a forever being. If you are a human being, you are a forever being. We are forever beings made to be in relationship with the One who is forever. As we've cited St. Augustine already, Lord, You have made us for Yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in You. John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, says it like this, Until we are reconciled to God, everything to which we look for satisfaction will surely disappoint us. God formed us originally for Himself and has therefore given the human mind such a vastness of desire, such a thirst for happiness as He alone can answer. And therefore, till we seek our rest in Him, in vain we seek it elsewhere. Neither the hurries of business, nor the allurements of pleasure, nor the accomplishment of our wishes can fill up the mighty void that is felt within. Do you feel the mighty void? Do you feel this eternal void? God is the one who alone can fill the mighty void within you. So we come here to the turning point in Ecclesiastes. This is in many ways the hinge and it's the pivot upon which the whole message of this book rests. The, the reason you've never met a fulfilled geek or guru, the reason you've never met a contented money lover, the, the reason you've never met a truly happy and satisfied party animal, the reason you've never met a fulfilled moral crusader or religious do-gooder, the reason you've never met anyone who found real contentment in youth or in health is because nothing under the sun can quench the thirst of someone who was made to drink eternal water. Nothing can. So what is this eternity? It is this awareness of God and the eternal. Something more, something beyond. How did we become aware of this? Here's a question. How, how do we know about this eternal? Maybe it's a question some of you are asking. How do you know there is the eternal? Let me, let me offer you four quick answers to that. These are four echoes of eternity, which is the title for this message. Four echoes of eternity. I'll give them as quick as I can. Nature, conscience, outrage, and joy. Four echoes of eternity. First of all, nature. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1 says, Remember your what? Your Creator in the days of your youth. In other words, you have known that there is a Creator. Now make sure to remember Him. 
Don't forget Him. Call Him constantly to mind. But how do we know that there's a Creator? Simple answer, because there's a creation. We know that there's a Creator because of creation, because of nature itself. Psalm 19 and verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Romans 1, God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. There are those who say, it's not fair, God doesn't talk to everybody. He has talked to everybody. He has communicated with every single human being on the planet. Through nature, through creation, it reveals to us the existence of God, the attributes of God, the glory of God, the beauty of God, the love of God, even the wrath of God. It's all there for those who will look and see. Creation sings. It sings the existence of God. It sings the beauty of God. The old hymn, all nature sings and around me rings the music of the spheres. All nature sings. From the morning prelude of sparrow chirp and cricket sound to the philharmonic orchestra of the stars to the grand overture of galactic space to the day-night medley of sun and moon to the fortissimo roar of Niagara to the staccatoed rhythms of the rain to the cadence of Winter, spring, summer, and fall to the tone and texture of a human face, to the bass drum beat of a thundering storm, to the steady roll of pounding waves, to the harmonized function of the human body, to the a cappella sound of a rushing wind, to the soaring crescendo of mountain majesty and sequoia strength. In all of these, the orchestra of creation conducted by the eternal composer himself, is playing his song, is declaring his glory. The world, as the poet said, is charged, charged with the grandeur of God. Eternity echoes within our hearts through nature. It echoes in our hearts through conscience. We know right and wrong. In many ways, we don't have to be taught right and wrong. We just know it. Romans 2, Paul says, When Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. Humans, Paul says, by nature. By nature. That means naturally, instinctively, without having to be trained or taught. Human beings have a law within their hearts. They have a sense of right and wrong. No matter what part of the planet you go, no matter how remote the place you go, you will find people who have a sense of right and wrong. It's everywhere. 
Now, it may vary in some ways in different places, but there's something there everywhere. Where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? It's an echo of eternity. It's the voice of God in the human soul saying, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. And it's the voice of God saying, when we do what we're not supposed to do, uh, it says, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done that. It's an echo of eternity. There's another echo in our hearts. Calling it outrage. I wish I could spend a lot of time on this because I, I think it speaks so much to our moment in history. We, we feel something at times within us that goes beyond mere guilt and unhappiness to outrage. We get outraged with ourselves. How did you do that? We, we get outraged with others. What were they thinking? How could they be so evil? And sometimes we feel outraged toward God. If God is so good, how dare He treat me this way? Or how dare He allow so much evil to exist, so much suffering? to exist in the world. There's outrage. There's a sense that justice has been violated, injustice has happened, undeserved suffering has happened, foul play has happened somewhere in my life, your life, or God's universe, and we feel indignant, we feel outraged by it. Where did that outrage come from? It's, it's, it's interesting, it's really a function of the conscience we just talked about. Outrage is a strong sense that things are wrong and things ought to be done about it. And there are many who see all the wrong that's happening, all the evil that is in the world, and they feel outrage, and they end up turning their outrage toward God, and they become so mad at God that they start denying that He exists. But then you start thinking about that. Who are you mad at if God doesn't exist? You see, you see the problem is that Outrage assumes that there is right and wrong. It assumes that there is that which is just and unjust. It assumes that suffering that is not deserved is somehow unfair. But those assumptions, where'd they come from? Where'd they come from? How do you know? There's justice or injustice. Why are you mad at God? Ironically, it's because you know He's there. You're having a hard time figuring Him out, making sense of what He's doing, but down deep you know He's there. And you know that there's right and wrong and justice and injustice, and you're confused at how He is allowing these things to happen 
But folks, this is a huge logical mistake. Just because we cannot understand God's doings does not mean God isn't there. It just means we can't understand God's doings. The fact that there's evil in the world does not prove that God does not exist. The fact that you know there's evil in the world proves that God does exist. And God has written it into your heart that evil's bad. Now, He hasn't told you everything about what He's going to do about evil, but you can be sure He's going to do something about it. And you can be sure He already has done something about it. He sent His Son to die for all of us evil ones. But do you see the connection? Outrage. This moral sense of indignation is is an expression of the fact that there is a moral lawgiver who establishes what's right and wrong. So, there's nature, there's conscience, there's outrage, and fourth, echo of eternity is joy. Joy. Joy and joy-giving things. In this light, right here in Ecclesiastes, as he draws this section toward a close, he talks about how uh, he perceives that there's, there's nothing better for us than to be joyful and to do good as long as we live. Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That's God's gift to them. So Solomon says, in the midst of all the meaninglessness, there are, there are experiences of joy that God gives to us, that Paul describes as those things that bear witness of God. God sends us rain and from heaven in fruitful seasons that satisfy our hearts with food and gladness. There are 10 million things that go on in the world that we taste and experience that give us joy, and they're, and they're meant to call our attention up to the joy giver there's there's music and there's art and there's love and there's laughter and there's there's taste buds why do I keep coming back to food but there 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 are taste buds do you do you do you realize that God could have created you in such a way with no taste buds, no ability to distinguish flavor and taste, but have created you in such a way that you could survive on sawdust and giving you an irresistible urge to eat it with no taste involved at all. Do you realize he could have done that? But he didn't. He didn't. What kind of good, smiling, kind creator is this? That he has made us and then put inside of our mouths these little teeny tiny microscopic things that are able to distinguish and discern hundreds and thousands of different combinations of flavors that please us, that delight us on the way down. Taste buds are an echo of eternity. They are. As is every other human pleasure on the planet and everything beautiful on the planet. Echoes of eternity. There is eternity in our hearts. 
How do we know that? How are we aware of that? Well, we're aware of it through nature, through conscience, through outrage, and through joy. Here's a question. How did it get there? How did that get there? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And God made man in his image. In the image of God, he made him male and female. He made him. We are made in the image of God. Warthogs don't have a sense of the eternal. Rats don't have a sense of the immortal. Sloths and slugs don't aspire for something higher. That was a poem. They don't aspire for something higher. But we do. But we do. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. They're stamped into us the character, something of the immortal, something of the beautiful, something of the wondrous, something of the majestic that's inside of us that isn't inside of any other part of creation. It's ours. It's ours. This is one of the great tragedies of contemporary pseudoscience, fake science, and all the wild... (laughs) Fake science, okay. That wasn't intended. So, pseudoscience. Um... And all the wild claims of evolution and such like that, you know, we're just evolved. There is no creator who has made us in his image. We're just evolved from whatever. There's such an open denial of the existence of the creator, such a willful, deliberate determination that man will not have God ruling over him and man will become his own God that the end result is that he has neither God nor himself. What I mean is, look, if all I am is King Kong's cousin, then, then I have no meaning. Then I have no dignity. If all I am is an accident of nature, if all I am is a, a more highly evolved species, but I have not been stamped, imprinted with the glory of God and the majesty of God, then I am nothing. I mean nothing, but I am something. And I mean something. And I will mean something forever. Because God has stamped eternity into my heart. God has made me in His image. And so what do you do with this? How do you respond? Two quick answers. Number one, remember your Creator. Here, here's, here's foundation. Here's foundation. Stop trying to live life without God. It's futility. Remember your Creator. You already know He exists down deep inside. Nature tells you. Conscience tells you. Outrage tells you. Joy tells you. You know He exists. Stop living in denial. Stop 
living, suppressing the truth about God. Remember your Creator. Remember that He is. And we'll, we'll learn next week and the week after certain aspects of Him that, that we, are to, uh, we are to keep near the center. We are to fear God, reverence God, hold Him in high awe and wonder. And we are to keep His commandments. We are to follow His ways. Remember God. Fear God. Obey God. And you're on your way. Remember your Creator. But then secondly, remember Jesus. See, you haven't heard much about Jesus this morning in this message. Well, the New Testament says that Jesus is the one who is greater than Solomon. Jesus is the truly wise one. Jesus is the ultimate wise man. Solomon was just a shadow of Jesus. But Jesus was also Redeemer and Savior. He came to redeem us from our futility. And He came to reconcile us to God so that we could be at peace with God. The Creator that we have denied and disobeyed our whole life. Jesus came to bear the punishment for our disobedience. To to bear the atonement for our sin. He reconciles us to God. And by His Spirit, He renews God's image in us. So that day after day, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, Paul says. We are being renewed in the likeness of our God. We are aiming again for that for which we were created. This is the Gospel. Remember God, yes, and then come to Jesus who alone can bring you, can reconcile you to God, and who alone by His Spirit can make you more and more like God. So that you can enjoy God and be with God forever and ever. The eternity that's in your heart will find eternal expression in the presence of the Eternal One. The Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This this is where it's going, folks. This is where you need to go and I need to go every day of our lives. We need to remember our Creator turn our thoughts and hearts in His direction, recognize the eternity that's within, and then aspire for that something more in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are aware that these are ultimate realities. There there just isn't anything more important than these things. Nothing. Oh Lord, may it be that You will keep the enemy away who would love to snatch these things from our minds and hearts and distract us with 10,000 things. Keep the enemy away, O Lord, that Your Word might sink into the soil of our hearts. It might take root there. And it might sprout and grow and bear fruit. Fruit of faith and joy in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to now do our Q&A time. Uh, We have several great questions that have come in. Our first one is, 
How can someone feel satisfied and content with the things they have when there are always things that come up in life? For example, always needing clothes for children that keep growing like weeds, bills that need to be paid, etc. This is a, yeah. is this working now? Yep. <laughs> All right. Um, how do we be satisfied when there are basically when there are always needs? That's it's a good question. It's the kind of tension that you you kind of live with in this world where there is always need. Um, Part of the answer to that is that you're not, you can be satisfied even when there are always needs in the sense that your joy is not wrapped up in your needs. Your joy is deeper than that. Your, your, your joy is in God who is the giver of all good things. Um, so, there's a sense in which, and I'm, and I'm speaking as a man who's, we've had six children, so we've, we've gone through that weed-growing stage of, you know, kids growing out of their clothes, wondering how the bills were going to be paid, uh, you know, as a man who, who lives with a headache, who lives with pain, as a man who knows sorrow and suffering. It is, it is possible, with the help of God, with the grace of God given to you day by day, as you remember your Creator, as you walk in Him, trusting Christ, living for His glory, it, it is possible to keep working for the things you need, to keep trying to figure out how to make ends meet, but to have your joy separate from the need. To have, just have your joy in the fact that God is. And God is in this. It may be deep need. You may be here today with profound need. We're not talking about you know, whether or not you get a second or third set of clothes to wear. We're talking about your life, your death. It, we're talking about someone you love and, and, and it could be profound need and profound sorrow. Uh, just I'm here to, to offer to you what God offers to you, something deeper than that even. Uh, what is it that um, Corey Tenboom said? Um, there is there is no sorrow, there is no grief that is so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Something like that. Um, there is no need you have that is deeper than the love of God. And as you come to know God in Christ, something happens on the inside that enables you to have strength to work and labor and do what you need to do, uh, but rest at the same time in the goodness of God. Maybe a follow-up question to that is like we see in the passage that the gains that Solomon talks about are all material. Where can we see references to eternal gain? Like if God has put eternity in our hearts, where do we see references to eternal gain? Mm. There are, there are references to eternal gain found, you know, especially in the fullness of the New Testament. We see it over and over again. The promise of everlasting life, the promise of eternal rewards, the, the promise of crowns, the, the, 
the promise, the, the one I, I so love, to, of hearing Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. The, the promise of being with Christ forever and with believing loved ones forever. The promise of a, of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and there will be no unrighteousness. The promise of a world where there's no sin, where there's no evil, where there's no brokenness, where there's no hunger, where there's no need. The promise of a world where Jesus is, uh, that's, that's worth living for. That's the eternity uh, that, we, that we live for now. And we get a little taste of it in these, these, the, the pleasures that are here in this world, uh, which we're going to look at in the last message of the, of the series called Glimpses of Eden. There are pleasures, there are delights, there are things to enjoy. But they are, they're not the ultimate joy. They're a shadow of the ultimate joy. As C.S. Lewis says, um, uh, let's not mistake the echo for the shout. Heaven and eternity with God is the shout. It's the glory. And we just have little echoes of it here on earth. But let's enjoy the echoes as we look for eternity. Our next question has to do with uh, those who have not heard of Christ or the gospel. Would, e- would having eternity in the heart of man mean that someone can be saved, even if they haven't heard the gospel, but know that there's something bigger out there? They might not know who or what it is. Mm-hmm. Could you speak into that? Yeah. Okay, there's a lot of layers to that one. Um, I'll, I'll state the state the, what I think the Bible clearly says is no, no, no one can be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Um, that doesn't mean that people who haven't heard of Christ have an excuse because God has spoken to them through nature and conscience. And no matter where you go, humans have ignored God's voice in conscience and nature. So Paul says they're without excuse. They're guilty before God. It doesn't mean that they will be judged for rejecting Christ. They will be judged for rejecting the knowledge that God gave them in creation and in conscience. But here's something. We see hints of this in Scripture and missionaries speak of this. Often, it's happened hundreds of times through the years. Missionaries will go off into remote places in the world. They'll walk into a village somewhere. And this has happened many, many times. When they get there, somebody welcomes them and says, we've been waiting for you. And they go on to say that we have known that there is a creator out there. We have known there was someone bigger than our idols, bigger than our images. And in some cases, we've had visions uh, where, where God or angels have appeared to us and say, I'm sending a messenger. Somebody's going to come and tell you the full truth about how to be right with me. It's happened hundreds of times in the history of world missions. So God sees. Here's, here's I think, the, 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 how I'd pull it together. God sees any and all authentic faith that is in any human heart, no matter how little or much knowledge they have, and where it is sincere, where it is authentic, I am convinced God will provide the gospel for them. How he does that uh, is, is up to God, but 
Ultimately, we are saved through faith in Christ alone. Um, but God has his ways of getting that message to people in far off, far off places. That probably raises more questions. Feel free to ask afterwards. Yeah, last question that we have time for here is, um, where does evil come from? Uh, is, he not the cre- is God not the creator of everything? Alex, so. you knew. <laughs> yeah, I'm dealing with you later. That, <laughs> that is, anybody who's, who's studied theology as much as Alex has studied theology knows that is the most difficult question uh, that any believer has to try to answer. Um, And I don't have a good answer for it, um, or a full answer for it. I will say this, I know evil exists, and I know God exists. And I know God is good. So somehow, in the mysteries of the infinite, incomprehensible deity, um, he has created a world that was perfect, but somehow or other evil entered. I don't know how. I don't know why. This gets back to some of our first messages in Ecclesiastes. Yeah, looking for the whys, you know, the, the trouble with whining, if you remember. And it's, an, it's a good question, but God doesn't reveal the full answer to it, other than to say that he never does anything wrong. And to say that evil exists because of our choice, not his. He didn't make us sin. He didn't make us do evil. It was a a human choice involved in that for which we are accountable to God. Very deep things there. It's a really good question. I don't have a full answer, but those are little, little pointers for you. So if you want to talk more on that too, ask Alex afterwards. <laughs> it's fair. Let me just close with this verse from uh, Philippians uh, chapter 1, and then uh, I'll pray for us. Mm. Paul writes, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Heavenly Father, in light of eternity in light of our short temporary life here on earth, I pray that that would be the desire of our hearts, Lord, knowing that at any moment we could see our Savior, we could see our Creator, and that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray that as we leave here this afternoon, Lord, you would just show us how to walk that out, Lord in light of the futility of all these other things that bombard us, bombard our thoughts and our thinking and our behavior, that we would treasure Christ above all and that we would know that to live is for him alone and to die is gain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.